coming up on the Mark Divine Show. All of a sudden, going down this downhill portion of the race, maybe about 25 miles an hour on a single track, the brake broke through the rim. I flipped over with my hands still on the handlebars. It broke both my hands, got two black eyes, and I got up. And of course, there was a little bit of shock, but then I just had this thought, like, well, what if I could still finish the race? I took off the tire, rode on the rim. I knew my hands were broken because as I was going over all the rocks. I could feel the clicking in my hands. So then I drove myself to the hospital and got the x-rays and confirmed that it was broken. But that resilience sort of came through when I needed it most. Hey folks, welcome to the Mark Divine Show. This is Mark Divine, your host. In this show, we discover and we dive in deeply and discuss what makes the world's most inspirational, compassionate, and resilient leaders so courageous. We talk in depth to people from all walks of life, martial arts grandmasters, meditation monks, CEOs, military leaders, stoic philosophers, entrepreneurs, proud survivors of whatever, and more. Each episode will turn that guest experience into actionable insights that you can follow and use to lead a life filled with courage, compassion, and wholeness. I'm super excited today to talk to Sun Sachs. Sun Sachs is the CEO and co-founder of Rewire Fitness. Sun grew up in Canada, then later ended up in uh, Boulder, Colorado, where he got involved in endurance sports, biking, a first road, and then mountain biking at a pretty early age. He worked his way up to an elite level in several disciplines, only to retire at 26, suffering from burnout and injury. And he embarked on a journey to discover how to train more holistically. During that time, he pursued a career in software development, and now he's bringing many of his learnings to market with a company called Rewire. He's a self-described performance geek and relentlessly pursues all avenues to improve athletic performance and overall well-being. Where'd you grow up and what was your family like? What were the patterns that conditioned you to be the way you are? Where are you from originally? Are you from Hudson? or? Yeah, so I actually was born in Canada in the 70s, early 70s had a non-traditional upbringing with parents. They were hippies. They moved quite a lot, like every 10 months or so. Oh, wow. Sort of the earliest memory building on this theme of trauma. Mm -hmm. About two and a half, I basically choked on cherry seed, and there was no hospital or anything around within uh, more than an hour radius. Jeez. Turned blue. Um, it was a few minutes of not breathing, and literally the neighbor saved me riding up on a horse. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like the wild, wild west. Seriously, yeah. 3,000 acres, a lot of bears and wild animals and stuff, which that part's obviously pretty formative as well. But right. you know that set the stage for what, for me, built a lot of resilience in that my parents ended up joining a cult. Wow. What age were you when they were in this cult? From four to, I think, eight. Okay. Were you influenced at all by that teaching? Yeah. Mostly my parents were just gone all the time. I see. From morning to late at night, I was alone. Right. And so, you know, there are all kinds of things that happened at an early age, you know, four, five, six, seven, ODing on my mother's medication accidentally, Jeez. almost blowing myself up with these fishing explosives that were in the neighboring lot. The fisherman completely freaked out when he saw me basically trying to try to break them apart. 
I had a few abduction attempts Good Lord. with strangers. Yeah, trying to get pushed into vans. An exciting childhood you had. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Life of adventure, if you want to contextualize it positively. Yeah. Like, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, exactly. It's very, very formative. Uh, what, what was school like? Did, were you in and out of school at all or homeschooled or no school? So I definitely was in a lot of different schools with all the moving. And unfortunately, whatever it was about my personality, kids picked up on. I was just bullied for a good 10 years, you know, from school to school, suffered broken bones, uh, a lot of humiliation, mental, physical abuse. And as a result, I also developed severe OCD and uh, speech impediment, which only made things worse, of course. Right. (laughs) Now, because of your outdoor living, were you athletic and tough or did you consider yourselves to be easily bullied? Yeah, so it, it was interesting. The athletic piece, you know, sort of some kind of alchemy happened. I felt very victimized, very vulnerable, pretty sensitive kid. And at some point in my preteens, we moved to Colorado and I got involved in bike racing mm-hmm. at an early age. I think it was like 12. And something about that. Wait, was it mountain bike or road biking? So. This is in uh, 1983 was my first bike race. So this was really pre the mountain biking circuit. I got involved in junior bike racing. But then as soon as mountain biking developed, you know, that was definitely my sport, a lot of different disciplines within it. So, um, right. you know, the interesting thing was like what felt like a lot of trauma suddenly became a strength. They're not suddenly, I'm sure it was a, you know, gradual process, but I just felt that I could endure a lot more. So tell, let's go into that a little bit because I, I have some familiarity in a sense that, you know, we, I had a stable childhood in that we didn't move around. We were basically had one home, you know, for my entire childhood. So that was on the positive side, but on the negative side, I had a lot of violence and, you know, alcohol and whatnot. And so I turned also to endurance sports and then became a Navy SEAL. And I had a similar experience where resiliency seemed to come easy to me. So I have my theories, but I'd love to listen to yours and, you know, see how trauma can be naturally or with a little willpower turned into, you know, mental strength. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Where it started to become kind of striking. And I went all in with really working towards the goal of becoming a professional athlete. I got up to an elite level, ended up dropping out of college to pursue it, Okay, was all in. And, you know, what the things that surprised me that I didn't know is the untapped resilience one time I was in a bike race and I was using these hyperlight wheels and, you know, the wheels are um, really thin and basically within less than three months of use, all of a sudden going down this downhill portion of the race, we have about 25 miles an hour on a single track. The brake broke through the rim and it had a violent stop and basically so fast like whiplash that I flipped over with my hands still on the handlebars. It broke both my hands, got two black eyes, and I got up. And of course, there was a little bit of shock, but then I just had this thought, like, well, what if I could still finish the race? (laughs) I took off the tire, rode on the rim. I knew my hands were broken because as I was going over all the rocks, I could feel the clicking in my hands. And then when I finished the race, I went to the medic tent and they're like, well, there's no way you could ride with broken hands, so you're fine. Like, it's, it's just a you know, a severe bruise of some kind. And so then I drove myself to the hospital and got the x-rays and, you know, confirmed that it was, it was broken. But (laughs) like that resilience sort of came through 
when I needed it most. You know, whatever you suffered as a child, whatever kind of emotional abuse, you know, from peers and whatnot, do you think that part of you shunted pain, you know, is there some part of your psyche like shut off certain pain receptors, which allowed you to push through what would normally be, you know, a showstopper like broken wrists, riding a bike over rocks? Yeah, I think on the extreme end, that's probably true. Yeah. And part of what we ended up building is all around this sort of resilience training. And what the science shows is that the resilience that you build is sort of a generic capability where when you're under a higher amount, sort of at your breaking point of resilience, that's when you have that extra capacity. Mm -hmm. And so we'll get to sort of what the sort of how I solve my own problem. But I think that that's, you know, depending on the type of trauma that you go through, that becomes a a resource that can be applied to different things. But the other side of it, I would also say is that what is a sort of a weakness or a trauma that then becomes a strength can also then eventually hold you back. Right. And that's also part of my journey is just sort of learning where it was an asset, but also where it was holding me back and, and ultimately something I had to sort of put in my toolkit, but not necessarily always live that way in a survival mode. You know what I mean? Right. It's one thing to be able to push through the extreme challenging moments, right? But it's another thing to not let that, the patterns from that trauma slowly degrade your motivation and your performance over the long haul. Yes. Yes. That's fascinating. Exactly. Yeah. Double-edged sword. I want to stay on this and relate trauma to the difference between positive and negative trauma and how that we can, you know, how hard, hard training really is a deliberate attempt to traumatize the body <laughs> and the mind, right? In an effort to get stronger and better at something. Yeah. So there is a correlation. Yeah. But what's the difference between training-induced trauma versus the trauma, you know, let's say of a traumatic childhood? Yeah. And I, and I have maybe a sort of a controversial opinion about it in some respects. The trauma that I experienced was over a, quite a long period of time. And, and sure, there are some in hindsight, there are some beneficial, you know, results from it just in terms of extra resilience. But the traditional way of building resilience is sort of this, this approach where you push yourself physically over and over again. And as a side effect, you do build more mental resilience. But in my opinion, and in our team's opinion, when we look at athletic performance, we believe there's a better way a structured way in which to build uh, more resilience where you're adding more mental load to your brain in the same way that you would do mm -hmm. in physical training. So in other words, does going out and pushing yourself physically result in more resilience? Absolutely. But it's not very prescriptive. You know, you don't know your current state of cognitive fatigue and stress. Mm -hmm. You know, in some cases it will be beneficial. And as we've all experienced is in some cases it will not be helpful. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. And there's also, as you get more fit, you start to have to push yourself harder and harder, okay. right? To diminishing be able to get returns. that diminishing returns. So what do you do then? How can you be, you know, more like a scalpel in terms of your resilience training versus something that's just a little bit more of a blunt instrument, as I like right. to say. Do you consider resilience training to just be one aspect of overall, let's just say in athletic field, athletic training or in other areas of life? Is it just one aspect of training for life? Yeah, absolutely. 
So building resilience and having grit is important in life. Mm-hmm. But on the other side of it, the impact of cognitive fatigue, mm-hmm. which we all experience, especially in this modern society, mm-hmm. is significant and often overlooked and undermeasured, right? So a thought experiment would be you have a long day of work, a lot of stress, maybe some family issues come up. You go to work out in the gym at the end of the day, it's going to feel physically harder and you're also going to have some challenges with motivation. Right. That's not necessarily because your body is under went through a lot of stress unless you have a physical job, it's more because you your cognitive fatigue is negatively impacting your performance. So what I'm getting at is some kind of mindfulness practice, something that will give you a calm mindset. In in my opinion, mm-hmm. having a calm mind is even more powerful than having a hard mind. Mm-hmm. Having a rigid or brittle do or die mind. I've had to learn that over many years because my MO is the the hard edge, the sort of rigid. <laughs> okay, we're gonna take a short break here from the Mark Divine show to hear a short message from one of our partners. And now back to the show. Certainly when people look at me and other Navy SEALs that are uh, you know in this air quote influencer area, such as David Goggins, for instance, or Jocko Willink. And these are great guys. And I know them both. And I consider them teammates. But there is the message is kind of like, go harder, right? Just do it. Push, push, push. And my message is really kind of more aligned with yours. It's like, uh, you know, there's times to push and there's times to recover and to go within. And it's more the yin yang, because I was a martial artist for years and even before I was a SEAL. So I really learned that kind of I mean, I was a traditional martial artist where we meditated and then got on the, on the floor and trained, and then we meditated mm-hmm. and trained. And so I, I got that kind of essence of balance, the yin-yang and how they work together and how crucial they were. And so when I train Navy SEAL trainees or candidates, when they just think I got to be tougher, 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 go harder, stronger, faster, I say, well, you know, if a tsunami comes, and we had a tsunami just, you know, recently over in Tonga, if a tsunami comes, do you, would you rather be the mighty oak or would you rather be the, you know, the reed? And they're like, yeah, look at me kind of glassy eyed. <laughs> What's going to happen to the oak? It's just going to get washed away. It's done. Yeah. But the reed is just going to bend over and the tsunami will wash over it and then it'll pop back up. So you kind of want to be a reed in those circumstances. And there's a time to be tough, like you said, and there's a time to be soft. How did you learn how to be soft? So, um, yeah, great question. I mean, basically, I ended up retiring my career very early, burnt out, injured, around 26. That is early. Yeah. Spent the next 20 years basically trying to unpack what went wrong and trying to improve. Mm -hmm. And in that process, one of the things that I discovered, I read a book called Autobiography of a Yogi. Oh yeah. One of my favorites that got me on my yoga journey. There you go. (laughs) It's such a phenomenal book by Paramahansa Yogananda. Exactly. So I actually joined his organization. Okay. Yeah. It's right down the street. In fact, my SILFA training center was, I could throw a rock at the SRF facility. Yeah. And we used to go to their meditation gardens and run up up and down the street in front of them. Amazing. Yeah. 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 So I went all in. I signed the lifelong oath to not reveal any of the secrets. Right. I basically was meditating for hours. Kriya yoga. Yeah. I earned my Kriya band level, basically where the they reveal the master secrets. Right. And, you know, I was meditating three or four hours a day. That doesn't seem sustainable either. You go all in, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but um, you know, I learned the lessons maybe slowly, but I eventually learned the lessons. So, like, I I started to realize the 
practice was incredibly valuable, but I needed to dial it back and I needed to right. find a way to make it more sustainable. So that's why I ultimately ended up doing still practice some of the techniques, but I basically mm-hmm. added that to my toolkit and, you know, looked at that from a, you know, even from a performance standpoint is invaluable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the other thing is that I'll just sort of equate, which I think athletes can relate to um, and high performance individuals is getting into a flow state is very similar to meditation. You, you have this very calm, ready state and you observe things in a manner that is quite rational. You know, you're not going to, if you're amped up listening to high tempo music, you're never going to get into a flow state. You're not going to find that quiet place where you actually can have incredible performances. Mm-hmm. What do you think happens with flow state? What's your informed opinion about why that occurs and what makes it happen? Part of my athletic career, I became a bike messenger in the streets of Seattle, You're basically sprinting and throwing your, propelling yourself down big hills all the time. So I was in flow state hundreds of times, literally. Hmm. For me, the sort of flow triggers, one, you do need to be in kind of a calm, ready state. Mm-hmm. The second thing, my kind of deeper theory is that when there are multiple data points that your brain needs to process in a fight or flight situation, you basically time shift in order to be able to deal with the risk or the circumstance. So mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. I was at a race a couple months ago. I was off-road going down this hill and the guy right in front of me hit this rock and flipped over. And as he was flipping through the air, I saw that my trajectory was such that I had to decide where he was going to land before he landed so that I could be in a position to avoid him. Meanwhile, Mm -hmm. there's people right behind me and there's obstacles in front of me. That was a classic flow state where suddenly things slowed down. And I couldn't think about any one thing. I had to take in all of that data at once and decide where I was going to be in order to, you know, basically survive. Now, in that circumstance, there's a skill component. So I definitely do not encourage people to throw themselves into situations that they're incapable of performing in. But when you have sort of the circumstance plus the skill, that is an effective flow trigger is sort of this fight or flight state where you have to deal with a lot of different data points at once. And I think athleticism is where we most associate flow you can actually see it in a peak performance moments you know when you watch nfl football or baseball you know that it always just blew my mind you know that the outfielder going for the you know to catch the ball that would otherwise be a home run and like scampering up the wall and he's got his <laughs> non-glove hand just the ball just literally just floats into his hand and he's like yeah yeah you're like yeah the average human can't do that without thousands and thousands of hours of practice and it's that practice which kind of greases the groove to unlock the flow. Mikhail Schitzmel, I probably butchered his name in his book, Flow, does talk about yoga and how yoga, you know, he talks about how yoga, the practice can activate flow. I believe, and I don't know if you share this, but the practice of yoga in terms of the meditative practices, train your mind to allow you to unlock flow on demand, you know, at will. And you could say that samadhi is a perpetual flow state, right? Yeah. It's a state of being that is also associated with a stage of development of the mind. Yes. And so I I do. That's why I agree with you that meditation is one of the most valuable skills for anybody, for any performer, whether it's a you know, boardroom performer or an athlete, because you're, you're basically training your mind to be able to access those flow states without having to be a superb athlete necessarily. That's right. 
it is something that you can practice and you can practice sort of priming yourself for flow state. And right. there are things you can do sort of as a habit or a process to sort of help trigger that. Right. On the bike, I was able to experience it almost daily. So it is something you can refine. There's another aspect of performance, which I've noticed in my clients is really almost the long pole in the tent. And that's emotional awareness and emotional, you know, shadow issues that just always kind of creep up. They can creep up and kill motivation. It can torture you because you don't have the self-esteem or the, you know, the confidence to succeed at the highest levels because maybe you don't feel worthy, all of those aspects. So how did you deal with that and uncover that? And how did you overcome that and those issues? You know, what's your method for teaching that to your clients? Yeah, that's a great one. Many of your listeners kind of know the the theory behind the growth mindset and the fixed mindset. And right. that to me was particularly helpful in just identifying the brittleness of my mindset. So while I was really, really resilient, I couldn't accept failure in any way. <laughs> and mm -hmm. when something would fail, it would be devastating to me, mm -hmm. whether it was beyond my control or not. And so I had to start a process of not only allowing failure, but welcoming it and encouraging it. Mm -hmm. And seeing it as part as a helpful part of the process, and that, and it's I would say it's still something that I'm continue to work on. Mm -hmm. Self talk has been incredibly helpful. That's something that we have built into our product. Mm -hmm. Having those phrases that are going to sort of recall that state that you want to be in, mm -hmm. the mindfulness in terms of self reflection and self awareness when mm -hmm. you start. You know, you can burn a lot of mental energy cycling and fixating on negative thoughts, right? So mm -hmm. just being able to observe the self and, and see when that's happening and then recognize those patterns. Some therapy has helped. Mm -hmm. There's some neuroscience techniques that we use in the product around subliminal priming that are interesting. Mm. A wide variety of tools. Right. Yeah, there's no magic bullet when it comes to the emotional areas there. It really depends on what the issue is and, you know, the most effective tool. And, and also it's going to be different by, based on personalities. And so a multidimensional approach is important, isn't it? It is. Now you mentioned a product. You have a company called Rewire, which I think is really cool because we grow up conditioned in a certain way by our family of origin and our upbringing and everything. And so in order to really live our fullest potential, we have to kind of rewire that. You know, is that where it kind of came from, the name? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Really was just sort of taking those things that I've learned in my journey right. and applying a sort of a scientific approach, evidence-based approach to providing tools for structured brain training for resilience, uh, for mm -hmm. what we'd consider an alternative to meditation, maybe something that's a little more accessible where we, you mentioned the sort of the multitude of techniques. We'll combine those in what we call a recipe. So you might do a mix of you know, breathing, like box breathing, which I know you've been a proponent of for a long mm -hmm. time. We'll do some neuroscience with binaural beats. We'll do self-talk. We'll do subliminal priming. We'll really sort of combine a lot of different approaches so that we increase the odds of a greater efficacy for the individual. So that's mm -hmm. an important part. And then the last thing is just holistically tracking readiness. So, you know, what we see as a lack of innovation in the space. You know, when you look at all of the readiness systems out there, 
they only look at the physiological measures, right? So Mm -hmm. those are important. I mean, I discovered HRV more than a decade ago, and it's super helpful. But sleep, we're more than just our sleep, our heart rate, and our training load. You know, we Mm -hmm. have an emotional component. We have a cognitive component. And if we're not looking at that holistically in terms of our readiness to perform Mm -hmm. and providing the right amount of intervention, we're really missing a not only a great opportunity to improve, but also to be healthy athletes for the long no. haul. No, the quantitative folks would say, yeah, but, you know, yeah. it's objectively measured. The heart rate and variability <laughs> in your sleep is objectively measured. But, you know, if someone's self-reporting on their motivation or their mindset or whatever, then that's subjective and not to be trusted. So what right. do you have to say right. about that? <laughs> I mean, listen, we have uh, hundreds of thousands of years of biology of self-assessment. Right. There are aspects to our own understanding of ourselves that are very accurate. If you look at, I mean, honestly, anybody who uses a readiness tracker, like the modern ones that are out there, they will have days when they'll look at the score and they'll say, that makes no sense. Right. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I literally ditched <laughs> my aura ring a little while ago, Yeah. partly because of that, but also more like the law of diminishing returns fell off a cliff. You know what I mean? Yes. At first it's like, oh, interesting. Look, I slept. I got a 90 sleep score. And then, you know, after about the 50th 90 sleep score, I'm like, I'm not really learning anything. This is not bringing any benefit to me. So I just took the ring off. I'm like, it's interesting, but not additive to my life. That's right. And if you look at what the recommendations are, I mean, I like Aura for the sleep data, but when you look at the recommendations, you know, they're just, they're very generic. They're almost like astrology, to be blunt, you know? It's like, in, <laughs> interpret it the way you want. Right, yeah. It's like a go, no go. And more than 75% of the time, at least for me, it's don't go. So I would never be training if I listened to this totally. prescription every day. <laughs> no, I, the descriptions were useless for me as well, not the ding or at all. I think they're... Yeah, no, I'm not, exactly. But basically what I'm saying is the power is the combination of the objective and subjective data. Right. You know, both are important. And to discount the subjective data is a major miss. And also to not even think about the mind as part of your performance state. And to measure that, we have a sort of a, a way to measure the cognitive performance. You know, that's a essential piece. Like every athlete yeah. we talk to, we're like, what percentage of performance is mental? And they're all going to say the majority of their percentage, uh, you know, of their performance is mental but then they're not spending time really working on that directly. Right. So it's just a big gap. So tell me, how do we do this? Like what's the formula for measuring cognitive performance and, you know, mental states that drive flow state and whatnot? I mean, how do we train someone to self-report effectively? I guess is part of this question. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, there's some things you could do on your own. It does help if you have, you know, both, like I said, subjective and objective data. What we use for the mind measurement is a reaction time test. So it has been used in the military. You see it in sleep studies. It's a psychomotor vigilance test. And basically, every time you see the shape, you tap on the screen and we measure based on your prior baseline performance. So if you're off by 5, 10%, that's a significant indicator that you're under a greater amount of cognitive fatigue. Mm-hmm. Same thing with if you're, you know, if you see an incremental increase in your improvement in your reaction time. So like mm-hmm. having a, a way to objectively measure that performance is helpful. The subjective part of it, everybody is probably familiar with RPE, 
So your, your rate of perceived exertion on a scale of mm-hmm. one to 10, you'll see it in, you know, hospitals as well. Doctors use it. Mm-hmm. That's certainly helpful. Um, but I'll point out a few other things that are interesting. Your level of frustration, just noting your level of frustration on a daily basis is important because if you're under greater cognitive stress, you're going to have less cognitive control and sort of the lower level biology, your emotionality is going to be more, more prominent. And so if you notice suddenly you're getting ticked off by things that normally don't tick you off, you're clearly under a greater amount of cognitive fatigue. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I like to look at is sort of what state am I in? Am I in a parasympathetic state or a sympathetic state? And if you go really deep into into that sort of nervous system states, your in breath is your sympathetic state, your out breath is your parasympathetic state, and also your mm-hmm. nostrils. Your right nostril is related to your sympathetic, and your mm-hmm. left is your parasympathetic. So I'll even just observe you know, which nostrils clogged up, meaning if I'm in a high sympathetic state, my right nostril is going to be very clear. Mm -hmm. So just like simple observation to kind of unpack what's going on has been helpful. But obviously, we have sort of a a specific tool and a methodology that we use that helps people do it uh, without having to kind of do it ad hoc. Right. That's fascinating. So you have an app, obviously, and well, let's use you as an example. What does your daily ritual look like in using a tool like that? Yeah, so part of the practice or the process is basically you you wake up in the morning and as part of your morning routine, for me, I'll meditate first and then I'll do a readiness assessment, which is a two-minute test. And so, you know, it'll basically sync with Aura Ring and all of the other trackers, bring in your physiological data. I like to capture it live with heart rate strap. And then I'll go through this process where it basically assesses me cognitively, physically, and emotionally. And then it gives you an overall score. But then what's interesting is it then breaks down specifically what your areas of need are. So for instance, it might show that you have a slower reaction time or a greater amount of emotionality. And for me as an athlete, still competitive in my sport, you know, like if I'm planning on doing a big descent, where I'm going 40, 50 miles an hour down a gravel road, I want to know if my reaction time is off or I'm under cognitive stress. Like that's really mm-hmm. helpful for me for my own safety. But then different from the other systems, instead of just sort of saying, well, go or don't go, you should rest, uh, which isn't really realistic for most people. They all still have to perform. You know, they all have responsibilities. What we then do is take their cognitive, their physical, their emotional states, and we create that recipe, which is this recovery system. So we'll give them an on-the-spot intervention, which they could do as part of the morning practice or just snooze on it and do it throughout the day. So they'll basically go through like a two to to five-minute recovery protocol. Mm -hmm. And again, we'll measure their objective and subjective data so they can see how their body responded to it. And then the last piece is the resilience training, which is basically this scientific protocol where uh, it's focused on response inhibition, which is basically impulse control. So Mm -hmm. the athlete will do this cognitive task. And we like to call the task questions. So imagine in a 15-minute cognitive workout, 
they're answering a thousand questions. Mm-hmm. And then if you do that, we have another product, a hardware product, which will be rolling out hopefully later this year, which you could do it while you're training. So you're, you know, imagine pushing some hard intervals while also trying to be cognitively sharp. Hmm. And what that does is basically accelerate the cognitive load that you'd normally get just from training mm-hmm. so that we can increase the sort of the performance around resilience and also track it over time. So we have a unique way to sort of measure how mentally resilient you are and how much more resilient you can become, that kind of thing. Okay, we're going to take a short break here from the Mark Devine Show to hear a short message from one of our partners. And now back to the show. Kind of the image that came to my mind while you're talking and this is a future development, obviously, is kind of a Jarvis character who's your training aide, you know, your training partner, and then AI, you know, and it's while you're training, it's throwing cognitive load at you and, and having you solve puzzles and, you know, right. and then it's basically giving you the prescription for recovery after your workout. And yes, wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> that goes in the wouldn't it be cool category. <laughs> yeah, we do some of that. We don't have the character behind it, but we assess where you're at and we'll recommend. It doesn't show up as a hologram yet, though. Huh? <laughs> no, not yet. <laughs> I'd also love to be on a beach doing mindfulness work as well. Virtually, that would be nice. <laughs> that would be nice. So there's the holodeck. So Jarvis within the holodeck. Yes. Or the construct. You know, we will be training that way someday, which is kind of fascinating. Yeah. And it's coming fast. So where do you see, let's just say 22 to 24, the next few years, where do you see technology really going in terms of your world and performance training? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I definitely see that sort of this mental fitness component is going to be a new frontier. Right. We were first to market with a, a kind of a comprehensive solution. But, you know, these days you see all the major brands from Nike to Under Armour to hyperice not only investing in mindset but talking about mindset as a brand proposition as a mm-hmm. way to increase performance so mm-hmm. this is an area that is virtually untapped and will create basically i think the next level of athlete when you combine everything we already know about sports science with a structured way to train the mind uh, and recover the mind be sort of aware of the whole human being as it relates to performance, that is an incredible opportunity. We'll just keep pushing the envelope. You know, some of the greatest feats are sort of psychological barriers that people have to right. overcome, whether it's a four minute mile or two hour marathon and so on. And I also think that, and I hope that rewire is a part of it is that we find and develop a structured way to help people get into the flow state. I think that is crucial. That's, I believe, something that is a innate gift that we have that we've forgotten as human beings. Look at many of the animals out there and you see sort of how they respond to fight or flight or just the grace that they have mm-hmm. when they're moving. I think we can get there as well. We can relearn that. So that I'd like to be a big part of that. And uh, that's, I think, another frontier. And then obviously the AI stuff, we'll see where that goes. But a lot of the big brands are investing in that right now as well. Do you also work with individual clients now? Is there any exciting athletic adventure from many clients coming up that you're working on trying to help someone you know achieve something wickedly cool that's a great question um we actually have a lot of professional athletes amateur athletes brands under armor was an early investor with us we are working to help support all of those different populations and groups Mm -hmm. kyle corver the nba star also invested 
in uh, rewire and work with him. So the challenge question is a great one. I mean, a, a few ones I'll call out. We have this hybrid athlete who's incredible. He basically combines powerlifting with endurance sports. So like he did a five minute mile, some crazy amount of deadlifts, and then ran more than a marathon all in a single day. So like those <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, cool. we love that. It sounds like seal fit training. That's what we do. Yeah. 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 Well, I'd love to check it out one day when I'm when I'm over there. That sounds like fun, honestly. That's interesting you say um with our um seal fit training, you know, we do crucible, which is like pressure cooker type training. You know, it's modeled after the Navy SEAL Hell Week, which is just this genius training uh tool or methodology. And there's so much more going on than what anybody, you know, just observing from the outside could possibly imagine. Yeah. There's this deep, comprehensive, holistic, whole person, you know, training going on when you are sleep deprived and you've got these complicated challenges that, that an individual can't solve on their own. So they, that really relies on them to open up to, to ask for help and to receive help and to be a teammate, you know. Mm -hmm. And then you're dealing with, you know, physical performance challenges, psychological challenges, emotional challenges and it all is just this petri dish that and it lasts for 50 hours what happens those who who can push through you know have the resiliency and the grit and the presence to really push through about two-thirds of the way through suddenly it's like the sun comes out and their whole being and their spirit just like flourishes yeah they end these like wickedly long flow states that last for eight to ten hours and they're on the beach at night singing songs and just and just literally having the best time. And, and I talk to people after they've been up for 48 hours and just nonstop physical training. And most people think these people are just ready to literally crumble and they're just as strong as can be. And they're like, I could go for another 50 hours. Yeah. And it's just extraordinary to see what the human body being, you know, mind is capable of, you know, when you really train it that way and you challenge it. Yeah. And you sort of embrace the difficulty, you know, that's right. Like, instead of resisting it. Like, that's it's right. funny. Like, I've had a lot of experience. Obviously, I have some resilience that I can tap into when I need it. And you know, sometimes when I'm demonstrating that, it's interesting how people are sort of resistant or uncomfortable. Like, mm -hmm. I was at a race earlier this year, and in the beginning of the race, I got a flat. And I was basically like, okay, how am I going to get this done? And I thought, well, what if I could just finish it? What if I could just race the whole race on a flat? So I did. Mm -hmm. And, huh. you know, the riding on the rim, the, you know, obviously I'd done this before the metal was grinding and, and the athletes I was passing were like, you shouldn't do this. This is a, a bad idea. There's a lot of sort of <laughs> resistance. To yeah. That. Resistance to it. And you see it. And meanwhile, we have such incredible capacity, way more than we recognize. Yeah. So like finding these, these different methods to unlocking that is the most exciting thing as athletes. Yeah, I agree. That's probably a great place to uh, to wrap things up. So people can find more about you and your company. Uh, where do we find more about you? They can go to rewirefitness.app and also find us uh, on social. Just search for Rewire Fitness. You'll find us. We launched this year and we're growing a, uh, a big community of like-minded athletes who care about performance uh, at all levels and want to help everyone improve. So we look forward to hearing from folks and we have beta programs and other ways people can participate more deeply if they like. So, All right, son. Uh, thanks so much. Really fascinating conversation and good luck with the, the company. Good luck with your training. I'm going to go check it out myself and it sounds fascinating and um, 
I'll be watching you and at the forefront of mental fitness. Booyah. Thanks so much. Exactly. Yeah. But great conversation. Appreciate it. There's some really interesting things I found about that interview. First, how Sun grew up, but yet another individual who grew up with a fairly traumatic childhood, bouncing around every 10 months to a new home and living in the wilderness and, you know, getting essentially traumatized as a youth and how he turned that into resiliency. And then how he began to investigate that through endurance sport. How did resiliency or how did his childhood make him resilient? And then the pros and the cons of that. Where were the limitations of trauma-based resiliency? So we had an interesting conversation about that and how training is essentially choosing traumatic experiences through uh, disciplined training to develop resiliency, but how it's also not enough. So we go into different types of training for cognitive fitness, such as mindfulness, um, positive self-talk, and how we can use a multitude or a recipe of these different mental, emotional, and physical training tools to achieve optimal performance and access flow state. So it's a great listen, and I hope you'll join us. So thank you very much, Mr. Sun Sachs. Show notes and transcripts are on our site at markdevine.com. A video will be go up on our YouTube channel at markdevine.com slash YouTube. On Twitter, I'm at markdevine and at realmarkdevine on Instagram and Facebook. And you can always hit me up on LinkedIn. I'll be launching our new newsletter, Divine Inspiration, soon. I'd love to have you on our email list. So go to markdevine.com and please enroll as a subscriber. Special shout out to my team, Jason Sanderson, Jeff Haskell, Michelle Zarnack, and Amy Jerkowitz, who helped produce this amazing podcast, bringing incredible guests to us every week and producing the show. It's a lot of work and they do an incredible job. Hoo-yah. And I also continue to appreciate the reviews. If you haven't reviewed the show, please do so. It helps everyone else find it. So wherever you listen, please consider reviewing it and sharing the podcast. 2022 is well underway. It's going to be a fascinating year. So hang on and continue to do the work. It's crucial to take care of ourselves, train our minds so that no one else is training them, and to develop more compassion and courage so that we can bring these skills and show up as the world-centric, compassionate leaders that we are. Starts with you and our teams. Let's be the leaders that we want to see in the world. Hoo-yah. Until next week, this is Mark Devine, and this is The Mark Devine Show.